Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. God has a church for his mission in the world. God has always had a mission. At the very beginnings of the church, he placed that mission in the church's hands. One key aspect of that mission was to tell the world. Before he ascended to the Father, Jesus gave that trust, often called the Great Commission, to his disciples. And for the last two millennia, the church has been hard at it trying to share, trying to evangelize the world. We've often gotten it down to a science. When I was a young adult pastor, I remember there was a program that was making inroads, that was making quite a difference in evangelistic efforts in local churches. They had carefully thought about this, planned it, prayed over it, studied it, so much so that they could tell us as pastors, if you will spend this much money, send out this many invitations, you will get this many people on your opening night, and if you follow the plan, the program, as we have outlined it, by the end of it, you will have this many baptisms. It was like baptisms in a box. Here it is, just go do it. And so we did. Is that the approach we need? That kind of approach is certainly not alone, not that example anyway. Because right around the same time, 1981, as I was starting ministry, there was an important meeting in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, my denomination. It was a meeting that happened every fall. And in that meeting, they made a vote, an important vote. They said, we haven't evangelized in the way Jesus calls us to. And so we're going to make that our studied effort, our diligent intent. Before we meet at the next world session in 1985 in New Orleans, Louisiana, we are going to spend the 1,000 days trying to baptize 1,000 people a day. We're going to add a million new members. It was called the 1,000 Days of Reaping. Some rather cynically referred to it as the 1,000 Days of Weeping. But we went after it, hard after it, trying to evangelize in more intentional and more focused ways. Is that what we need to be focused on principally? It's not just my church, a church that I love and have served. It's much broader than that. For example, back in 2004, when the Mel Gibson movie the Passion of the Christ was released. I can remember the efforts, the global efforts in Christian faith to say, let's make sure everybody possible sees this movie. I can even remember it being said, this may be the greatest outreach opportunity in a generation. Is that what Jesus had in mind? Or, or take what happened in Luzon in Switzerland back in July of 1974. A great congress there of Christians from all denominations came together. And there, under the leadership of Billy Graham, 
There was a corporate repentance over Christianity's failure to evangelize in the way Jesus had in mind. And then a corporate commitment was made. It was called the Luzon Covenant. It was John Stott, the great theologian, who drafted the document on which there were 2,300, 2,400 signatories, people diligently committing themselves to the evangelizing of the world, to being what the church needs to be to fulfill God's mission in the world. Time and again, in various and sundry ways, we have sought to fulfill that commission. After all, every gospel writer names it. Matthew quotes the words of Jesus, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Mark says it this way, Preach the gospel to every creature. John, on that last night before the crucifixion, records Jesus as saying, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And what about Luke? Well, Luke doesn't focus on it so much in his gospel. But when he writes his second volume, the, the book of Acts, then he tells the story of Jesus just before his ascension with the gathered disciples and telling them to go, not just in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but to the uttermost parts of the earth, sharing that gospel message. So you can imagine what that little band of believers that's heard Jesus speak those words, did in the book of Acts. As soon as Jesus had ascended to the Father, they called together and named a committee. They set down all the points that they needed to take into account. They listed them in priorities. They developed a timeline. They did... Oh, wait, wait, wait a second. I got confused there for a second with what they did and what we do. Maybe we need to go back and look at what they did. But before we go to a passage in the first chapter of Acts, I want to just give you a brief overview of the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts begins in Jerusalem. It begins with that ragtag band of believers, that motley crew of disciples gathered together with an overwhelming mission to take to the world. It, it, from human perspective, was absurd what they were expected to accomplish, to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. It begins there in Jerusalem. By the time the book of Acts ends, 28 chapters later, the gospel has spread all over the Mediterranean basin and now is present in the person of Paul the prisoner bound by Roman chains in Rome itself, the citadel of power, the epitome of the world of that day, the symbolic center of all things human in their mind. In other words, the gospel had done exactly what Jesus intended it to do. So our question then has to be, what exactly did they do? Did they have baptisms in a box? Did they have a certain movie? Certain document to which they all signed? Their names? What exactly did those 
early church disciples do? Well, we go to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 1. We're going to read the first eight verses of that book, remembering that this is Luke's second volume. His first volume was his gospel. Now we come to the open wor opening words of his second volume. Here's what it says. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The focal point of this passage is the gift the Father promised. So what exactly is that gift? I've never forgotten a statement the late Dr. Fred Craddock made in passing, just in passing, but I latched onto it. It, it. it engraved itself in my mind, so much so that I have quoted it many times in funerals over the last two or three decades. It was simply this. Dr. Craddock described those disciples of old on that night before the crucifixion of Jesus as he huddled with them around an upper, in an upper room around a low-slung table. He said the disciples were like children. As they sensed that Jesus was leaving them, they asked the same questions that any children the world over ask when they see mom and dad putting on coats, grabbing car keys, wallet, purse, to go out for the evening. They always ask at least three questions. Where are you going? Can we come? Then who's going to stay with us? Those were the unwritten, unspoken questions the disciples asked that night. And Jesus answered them, Where are you going? I'm going to the Father's house. Can we come? Not right now. Then who's going to stay with us? And then it came, the promise of the Father. Jesus voices it this way, I will not leave you orphans. I will not leave you alone. I will send you the Comforter, the Advocate, the Spirit of Truth to be with you forever. That's the promise of the Father. That's the promise that Jesus reiterates here in these words in Acts chapter 1. He tells the disciples, 
clearly what he would have them do. He says, wait for the promise. The Holy Spirit, verses 4 and 5, says, wait for the promise. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, he says, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will receive the power. The Greek word is dunamis of the Spirit. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to recognize that word, do you? Dunamis. Dynamite. You will receive an explosive, expulsive power to carry out God's mission in the world. So wait for the Holy Spirit. Now, I've, I've wondered, how would we do that? You and I, if we had been there listening to Jesus and giving us the command to tell the world, well, if we did then what we tend to do now, we would have set up a committee. We would have listed in priority what the needs are. We would have named our target audience. We would have decided all the mechanisms we needed to do to reach that goal. We would have set a timeline. We would have done many things with programs and initiatives and plans and strategies trying to determine how to accomplish this goal, the mission of God. I was curious what they did. And so in my digital Bible, I did, I did a search in the book of Acts. I put in the word Spirit, as in Holy Spirit. And I started going through, scrolling through, one at a time, find next, find next, find next, to see if the Holy Spirit's activity was evident and present in the book of Acts. Time after time after time, chapter after chapter, Holy Spirit did this, Holy Spirit did that, Holy Spirit said the other, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, woven through the entire fabric of the narrative. Everywhere you look, empowering every activity, guiding in every decision, walking with every disciple. No wonder some scholars say this book is called the Acts of the Apostles. It shouldn't be called that. It should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because that's what it's about. You remember what series we're in right now. Seven ideas that could save the church and one more that could change the world. And you remember our first idea. The first idea was this, ask the right question. Ask the right question. We tend to ask when the church struggles, what should the church do? But the first idea was don't ask that question, ask this question, what is God doing? And once we can determine that, we align ourselves with what God is doing. So what's the second idea? that could save the church. Maybe this is the idea. Take those words which we so often write, programs, strategies, plans, initiatives, and just draw a line through them. 
and in their place write the words, It's the Holy Spirit that matters. That's what truly matters. That's the second idea. It's the Holy Spirit that matters. Now, maybe you will ask me, Randy, how is it that the Holy Spirit became so prominent at this point in time? We don't see so much evidence earlier in Scripture, but at this point, was that the first time the Holy Spirit was known, or, or what happened there? I appreciate much the words of William Barclay, the old Scottish scholar, who has this to say about that reality. Barclay writes, to achieve the mission of Jesus, Men and women needed the Holy Spirit. Twice already, Luke has talked about waiting for the coming of the Spirit. We are not to think that the Spirit came into existence at this point for the first time. It is quite possible for a power always to exist, but for people to experience or take it at some given moment. For instance, no one invented atomic power. It always existed. But it was not until the middle of the 20th century that anyone was able to access that power. So God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there came a special time when people experienced to the full that power which had always been present. The power of the Spirit was going to make them Christ's witnesses. That witness was to operate in an ever-extending series of concentric circles, first in Jerusalem, then throughout Judea, then Samaria, the semi-Jewish state, would be a kind of bridge leading out into the world beyond Israel. And finally, this witness was to go out to the ends of the earth. So maybe, maybe we could say it this way, that second idea. Maybe we could say that the Holy Spirit is the one and only required element for the church to accomplish God's mission. The one and only required ingredient. Not the one and only ingredient, but the only one and only required ingredient. Many other things can be helpful, including plans and initiatives and strategies, all the things that we work to develop, staying in touch with the times in which we live, all can be helpful. But the one absolutely essential reality is the Holy Spirit. These early believers were gripped by that power, gripped so powerfully that they absolutely turned their world upside down. And that's not an overstatement. The late James Montgomery Boyce points that out. I was truly moved by these words. I want you to listen to what Boyce wrote some years ago. He said, I do not sense that Christians today are always aware of how thoroughly that plan was carried out by the first generation of the church. The entire pagan world acknowledged as fact the early Christian apologists claimed that Christianity had permeated everywhere. Tertullian, who wrote around the year 200, declared in his apology, we are but of yesterday. In fact, what he's saying is we just appeared on the scene. We are but of yesterday, and we have filled every place among you. 
cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camp, tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum. We have left nothing to you but the temples of your gods. Historians have asked how this first generation of Christians, who for the most part were unlearned men and women, could have propagated the gospel so rapidly. Adolf Harnack, a German historian of the 19th century, knew how. He said, we cannot hesitate to believe that the great mission of Christianity was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries. That was the secret. Every Christian not just a formal order of missionaries supplied by the Christians at home, considered it his or her obligation to bear witness. That's what happened. As these early believers were gripped, were baptized, were saturated by the power of the Holy Spirit, it moved them out of their comfort zones. It drove them out to the world around them. And that world was transformed, turned upside down by that itinerant Galilean rabbi's Holy Spirit. It changed. It saved the church. And here we sit two millennia later, recognizing that in many instances the church struggles. What does the future look like? How can the church have a greater impact in a world that is increasingly not only turning an indifferent shoulder on Christianity, but outright rejecting it? What can the church do whose sanctuaries often are empty, whose youth and young adult spaces are empty, and frankly at times whose hearts and souls are empty? Well, we sit around tables brainstorming, dreaming, planning, Make no mistake about it. I love to be part of something that's well-planned and well-thought-out and well-implemented. But isn't there something more? Something more fundamentally important? Alan Redpath and A.W. Tozer certainly think so. These are the words written by Redpath, who then quotes Tozer. Redpath says, in many Christian circles, the Holy Spirit is either neglected, forgotten, or misunderstood. The one given to unite the body of Christ is the center of controversy. This is a nettle. In other words, this is an issue which ought to be firmly grasped. So often Christian work is so rigidly programmed that it seems we no longer depend on Him. Yet Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. The late A.W. Tozer, author, pastor, said, listen to this, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would have stopped and everybody would have known the difference. That's the key. The Holy Spirit is the one and only essential requirement for the church 
to flourish. So what does that mean for us? It means it's time for us to wait, to linger in the presence of our Lord, to open our hearts and souls in prayer, to plead that we might be open to receive an outpouring, an infilling, a saturation with the Holy Spirit of God. It's time for us to pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's time for us to pray for that dunamis, that dynamite power that the Spirit alone can bring. Do you realize that when the Holy Spirit drives us, what other things we could do pale in significance to what the Spirit does. So it means that it's time for us deeply and faithfully to linger before God, asking that His Spirit might fill us. I love the words, simple words, from the pen of Ellen White. She says, There is one blessing that all may have who seek for it in the right way. It is the Holy Spirit of God. And this is a blessing that brings all other blessings in its train. In other words, she's saying, If you have the Spirit, you have everything you need because every other blessing comes behind that. So the church struggles in many places. Ask questions. What should we do? Maybe there are some ideas that could transform the church, save the church, extend the mission of God in the world. One of those ideas, a key idea, is simply this. The one and only required ingredient for the church to flourish in the world is the Holy Spirit. So how about it, friends? Isn't it time for us, person by person, believer by believer, heart by heart, to linger in the presence of God with the open-hearted prayer, God, fill us, baptize us, form us by the power of Your Holy Spirit that we might then be Your instruments to accomplish Your mission in the world.